Okay. Psalm 75, what I would encourage you to do as you listen uh, is what are some repeated terms in this psalm that capture your attention? What are some repeated vocabulary terms? That's one of the things you can listen for. There's a lot you can listen for, but let's look at the text from that perspective. For the choir director set to Al-Tashath, a psalm of Asaph, a psalm. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have judged, who have firmly set its pillars, Selah. I said to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. For not from the west... Not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert come exaltation. The Lord, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain it and drink down its dregs. But as for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And all the horns of the wicked he will cut off. And the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Now, were there terms that stood out to you in that text? Repeated terms. He talks a lot about horns. Okay, he talks a lot about horns. Horn or horns, the term is used. It is used in verse 4. It is used in verse 5. It is used twice in verse 10. So the term horn or horns is used often. What other term, what other terms are used frequently there? Lifted up and exalted. Lifted up and exalted. You notice the term lift up. It is also used in verse 4 and verse 5. And the word exaltation and exalts in verses 6 and 7 are from the same root word. Then you find the term used again in verse 10, to be lifted up. Now, let me also point out, look at verse 5. Do not lift up your horn on high. The word on high is from this same root word, same Hebrew root word as lifted up. <clears throat> Same word. So, so not it's used not only all those times you see lift up and exalt, but even there uh, in that term on high, it uses that particular word. 
Um, I'll tell you one other at least that stood out to me is the word wicked. Because the word wicked is used in verse 4, in verse 8, and in verse 10. So these are some key words and concepts. Um, One writer was pointing out the some of the times that this text picks up on the language of Psalm 73. For example, look back in Psalm 73. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The arrogant in 73 and verse 3 and um, they are the same as the boastful in 75 verse 4. So we're dealing with this same type of people. Now what was the overall theme last week when we studied Psalm 74 what was the overall theme, the overall picture of that psalm. I would say it was the temple's been destroyed, the people are in a state of despair, um, and basically God seems far away. In a lot of ways, it seems like to me that Psalm 75 is going to be an answer to Psalm 74. And I'm going to show you some of the ways that I think that's unmistakable. Some of them uh, may not be as clear, but it seems like to me that that it's somehow an answer. There's a reason these Psalms are arranged the way they are. I don't always know it, but uh, there's got to be purpose in all of this. But a couple of calls to thanksgiving at the beginning. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. Your name is near. For God's name to be something means that God is something. For example, in Psalm 44, Psalm 44, a verse 5, listen to this. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise against us. The phrase, through you, is parallel with the phrase, through your name. Through you, we push back our adversaries. Through your name, we trample down those who rise against us. For God's name to be something means that God is that thing. God's name is near. In Psalm 76, 1, His name is great in Israel. But but back to His name is near, it has seemed like God is so far away in Psalm 74. The temple is destroyed. There is no prophet. There are no signs. No one can tell us how long. And yet here, God, God's name is near. And in verse 1, men declare your wondrous deeds. In verse 2, when I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. Now, here 
if I can explain it well, is an unmistakable link with Psalm 74. In Psalm 75, verse 2, it mentions the appointed time. This is the same word that is used in Psalm 74 and verse 4. Your adversaries roared in the midst of your meeting place. And they have set up their standards for signs. In verse 8, they have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. The same word translated meeting places in Psalm 74.4. In Psalm 74.8, God's appointed place. This is the same word to talk about God's appointed time. What is going to happen to those who have burned down God's appointed place of worship? God has appointed a time when He will judge them. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. We have stated before, that when you see the first person pronoun, it is emphatic. It is for emphasis. And it is used here in verse 2. The first person pronoun in this second occasion where he says, it is I who judge with equity. It is used again in verse 3. It is I who have firmly said its pillars. And it's going to be used in verse 9. Verse 9 will be in reference to the psalmist instead of to God. But in verse 2 and 3, it replies to God. God is going to select a time for judgment. God is going to select. He will judge with fairness. And the earth and all that dwell in it melt. But God has set its pillars firmly. Now, this is not a literal statement of the makeup of the earth that it rests on large pillars. That's not the point. It is poetic language to say that God is the one who gives the world its stability. Its stability. I know we live in a chaotic, foolish world where God is rejected, Christ is rejected, and His Word is spurned. The fact that we have somewhat peaceable and prosperous lives in spite of that is amazing to me. And how many Christians do you know of? I know there are some, but have really been victims of a violent crime. I know a few, and I'm not saying that it's their fault. That's not my point at all. My point is to say the fact that any of us 
have any kind of stability in our lives and have experienced any kind of ease in the midst of a world that has forgotten God is only due to His stability. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. God has established enough foundation in this world that there's some sanity that remains. Some sanity that remains. And it's all His doing. Anything good, it's His doing. In verse 4, I said to the boastful, do not boast. Now, does it always read that way in your translations, I said to the boastful, do not boast? Okay, let me, let me give you something. This is, this is deep. I'm glad you're sitting down for this. That's the same word. Boastful and boast. Now, you never could have guessed that, could you? Uh, <laughs> I like it when the English preserves that and makes that a very simple point. But I said to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, don't lift up your horn. Now, boy, you talked before about horn being a key concept. Um... Who would want to define, or, or what is the idea of a horn and lifting up your horn? What is the idea behind the word horn? Right? It's a symbol of strength. Okay, it's a symbol of strength. It is a symbol of power. So strength and power are are demonstrated by that. Um, the, the bull, when he charges, puts his head down and does his damage with his horn. Other creatures, when they fight, it is often the same way. They lower their heads and they butt horns. But a horn is a symbol of power. It is a symbol of strength. Um, uh, Gary was talking about preaching about Zechariah 1 in the near future, but in Zechariah 1, 21, these are the horns which have scattered Judah. Again, it's a picture of power. It's a picture of strength. A lot of passages like that. Zechariah 1, 21 is that passage. But uh, God says to the wicked, don't lift up your horn. Don't lift up your horn on high. Now, we use a similar expression sometimes in a different way when we talk about don't toot your horn. Now, we're using the horn as an instrument more, more than a symbol of power. We're using it as a symbol of music. But it leads to the same conclusion. We are not in the business of self-promotion. We are not in the business of calling all eyes to ourselves. We are in the business, in this particular psalm you see, of praising God. The only thing that characterizes the wicked in this psalm, we're not given a whole list of things about the wicked or how they persecuted the righteous. We're not given a whole lot here. But what we are told about the wicked is that they are boastful and arrogant. And in contrast to this, the righteous who are described in verse 10 are people who praise God. Now, what is the orientation of your life? 
Is it simply to promote self or to praise Him? What is the orientation of our life? Don't lift up your horn on high. Don't speak with insolent pride. Any comments there on the first five verses? So a couple of versions. Do not lift up your horn against heaven. They, they translate that. Yes, I believe that that is... Let me look here. Um, the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation literally says against the rock which would be their reference for God. And some have taken that as against. Um, but, but, but don't lift up your horn on high or against. Okay, against heaven. I don't know if that means they were following the Septuagint, but I know that is a difference there. Um, and uh, they would be just translating that term high maybe as heavens. In verse uh, 3, when uh, God says, It is I who have firmly set its pillars, could that also be thought of as, uh, It is I who set things right? Yeah. Maybe as well. Yeah, I think. Stability, but also, you know, kind of intervening against the wicked and setting things right? Yes, I think that's. That may be more implied in verse 2 about the judging with equity, but it's all tied together. It's all closely uh, connected. Remember another passage that talked about the earth being shaken up? In Psalm 11, verse 3, the text said, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This one pictures the foundations are destroyed somewhat unstable. They are melting, or some have argued that word would better be translated swaying. They are melting, they are swaying, but God is holding them in place. Is one of the ways he holds them in place by putting down the wicked and and exalting the righteous? Yes, I I, I don't doubt that at all. And uh, so, yes, I think it's all tied together, John, um, that this is by him judging wickedness is a way that he keeps the world straight and the world operating according to some kind of order. If there's any kind of order in our world, it is a blessing from God. Any kind of order in a good way it is a blessing from Him. Um, any other thoughts? Verses 6 and 7, not from the east, from the west to the desert comes exaltation but God is the judge he puts down one he exalts the other God is the source of lifting someone up Um, it doesn't it's vain to look at any other source or to any other source for this kind of help. It's not from the east, not from the west. And of course, you know that's a, that's a merism. It, inc- it takes both extremes. It includes everything in between. It's not from any of these directions. The desert, which would have been to the south. God is the judge. God is the one who exalts. God lifts up one. God brings down 
another. And the verse 8, and if I'm not saying enough, please, please uh, break in. Uh, In verse 8, a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, it is well mixed, and he pours out of this, surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Now, the wicked in verse 4, we're told not to boast. Now, in verse 8, the wicked are going to be forced to drink this cup in the hand of the Lord. Now, the cup in 75.8, sometimes cups can be used for other purposes. For example, uh, in Psalm 23, in verse 5, uh, you know about the cup running over. And in Psalm 116, I believe it's verse 13, where you raise a cup of salvation. So so cup sometimes can be used in a more positive sense, but quite frequently the cup is a picture of God's judgments or God's wrath. For example, in Isaiah 51, Verses 17 through 23, you see this idea. In Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 28. In Ezekiel 23, 32 through 34. I believe that reference is correct. Uh, okay. Um, And there are other places you see this. What book in the New Testament would you expect that you're going to see the cup of God's wrath mentioned in most frequently? I hope that's a self-evident question. Yeah, Revelation. You're going to see it in Revelation uh, 14, verse 10, and 16, verse 19. And we're going to try to tie some of those things together in a moment, but this seems to be the point that he's he's using this image of a cup of God's wrath, and he is pouring his judgments into the cup, and he is forcing the wicked to drink it. Now it says, "A cup is in the hand of the Lord; the wine foams; it is well mixed." This word for this wine being mixed is used only here. But, but it is connected to another word for mixed. It is, it, it is uh, connected with a word used in Proverbs 23. When the Bible is talking about those who linger, linger long, is Proverbs 23.30, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Now, what's the point of a mixed wine in Proverbs 23, which is a warning against being involved in alcoholic beverages, a warning to stay away from? What is the, the significance of a mixed wine? Well, there's a couple of, like Holman Christian and another one, say that mixed or blended with spices, which okay. I had never seen before. Okay. Okay. But that would, that would not have been my first thought to, you, to the answer to your question. Okay. I would have thought it would have indicated 
more potency. Well, I, I still think it does, even with that those words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still think that it does indicate a stronger potency. I mean, the spices, you know, when it's the cup of his cup is the cup of God's wrath. It's not going to be, you know, a pleasant spice. Uh, so I do think there's an indication of of a mixed wine would be a more potent wine. And this cup of God's wrath has even been heightened in its intensity. It seems like to me the idea that's used here. It's well mixed. He pours out of this. And the wicked is going to have to drink down its dregs. You know, sometimes um, when you're drinking something, maybe um, you drank... You know, you, you ask your, uh, can think of a time in your life you asked your parents to, to buy something and they knew you weren't going to like it. And they said, okay, if you get it, you're going to have to drink all of it. And you have to drink it down to the last bitter drop. And uh, I know sometimes I've had that experience with the boys, but I can't remember what it was. And, and there's sometimes when uh, I've drank a couple of things of something, somebody else that, I felt obligated to do that too, as well. And um, but this is the idea that he's going to drink it until there's nothing left in the cup. This is not a voluntary drinking. This is a horrible thing to drink this cup of God's wrath. Now, verse nine. I told you that he uses his first person pronoun. He used it in verse 2 and 3 of God. He uses it in verse 9 of himself. But as for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing the praise of the God of Jacob. The wicked person may boast and promote himself. The wicked person may boast and lift up his horn. As for me... I will praise God. Now, same construction used in in verse 9 as used in Joshua 24. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And this is the same kind of determination here too. It's the same kind of determination. As for me, I'm going to declare it. I'm going to sing His praise. And the horns of the wicked will be cut off. The horns of the wicked will be cut off. But the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Now, first of all, notice though he uses that phrase, God of Jacob. Verse, the next psalm is going to use the phrase, God of Jacob as well. In verse 6, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a deep sleep. So God of Jacob... A term, simil- a term used throughout this section indicate God's promises to Jacob. Uh, but a final difference in the destiny between the wicked and the righteous is highlighted. The horns of the wicked are cut off. It's a violent act that robs them of their power. I, I know people, if, if you had an ox that was known to go in the Old Testament, you didn't take the means to restrain it, you were more liable, weren't you? I mean, you, you either pit it up, or I, I suppose, you know, I've heard of this today, you take the horns off of it. And that, 
be a violent act for one of these creatures, but this is what's going to happen to the wicked. Their horn is going to be cut off. Their horns are going to be cut off, for the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, that he may exalt you. What have I missed, people? Because I thought I had more than that. I'm not, I'm not objecting to getting out early if we finish early, but I wasn't trying to hurry up just for the sake of hurrying up either. Um, what, what do you see? Anything? Okay. Let's come back to this. And uh, you see the idea of horns, the idea of lifted up, the idea of the wicked, uh, among other things. But let's see how Jesus fulfills this psalm. What do we see with Jesus in Psalm 45? Psalm 75, excuse me. Okay. Well, let's start from the very first verse. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. In Jesus, God has made his name near. God has brought his name near. Listen to listen to John seventeen six. As Jesus is praying, he said, I have manifest your name. To the men with whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. In verse 26, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the, the love wherewith you love me may be in them and I in them. So what you see here is God has revealed His name, revealed His person, revealed His character in the person of Jesus. God has made His name very clear in this respect. And it tells us God has brought His name near. And the same verse says that men, and actually the word men is not in the original text. It just says they... Uh, they they declare your wonderful works. And this particular term for wonderful works in the Old Testament, sometimes used of creation, it's often used of the Exodus, it is used for the crossing of the Jordan River, but it, it, feel, it often deals with the mighty act of God's salvation. Do we declare God's wonderful works through Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when it begins in verse 23, uh, when Jesus took the bread and gave thanks, this is my body, and took the cup and said, this is my blood. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You, we are declaring God's wonderful works when we partake of that supper. And the God's wonderful work of salvation is being declared in taking that meal together. The Bible says, often the phrase is used here about being lifted up. Now, not every time is that translated with the same um, Greek word in the versions. But sometimes it is translated with the same word that's used in the Gospel of John. Remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and talked about the Son of Man being lifted up? In the Gospel of John, three times Jesus talked about being lifted up. And, and when Jesus talked like this, I would say he's talking about his death. And you might say, you may not, but you might ask, well, how would I come to that conclusion? Listen to John 12.32. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So when Jesus is talking about being lifted up, he will be lifted up on the cross. God is going to lift him up, but he's not only going to be lifted up. I couldn't find a place where this term, this particular word is used of the resurrection. But it is used of the ascension of Jesus. Jesus being taken up into heaven in Acts 2.33 and Acts 5.31 that he was lifted up. And so it refers to his death. It refers to his uh, ascension. Um, it says exalted in Acts uh, 531, but this is the same uh, Greek word that is used here. I believe it uses the term exalted also in Acts 2 in verse 33. Jesus has been lifted. God lifted him up on the cross. God lifted him up in the ascension. I think we could also assume from that the resurrection. Uh, but Perhaps the key passage, uh, and I'm not necessarily going in order with everything I want to say, but I think the key idea ties here with the cup of wrath. When Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. What's he asking? He's not asking for a cup that's a blessing where his cup runs over in Psalm 23. It's not in Psalm 116 a cup of salvation that's being raised. 
This would be of God's wrath. He's asking, may this cup pass from me. And that, that statement is made specifically in Matthew 26, 39. In Matthew, in Mark 14, 36, that that statement is made. He's asking that the cup pass from him. Now, uh, uh, turn with me, if you would, to Job 21. And I want us to see a discussion there. Job is a profound book. Um, I've been blessed to teach it a lot. I don't know if I'll ever feel like I've really even started to scratch the surface of it. But I know in Job 21, Job is speaking. And in Job 21, Job is giving his picture of the wicked man. Now, what's really striking in this section, this would be the second cycle of speeches from Job 15 to Job 21. Did I have you in Job, Caleb? Is it didn't? Okay. I had faith in Job, though. I did have faith. You remember that second cycle of speeches? Okay, I just wanted somebody that would ask all the hard questions to. <laughs> and uh, but Job fifteen through twenty one. You remember that second cycle of speeches that each of the friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, give a description of the wicked man. They give a description of the wicked man, and their description of the wicked man sounds. A lot like, uh, it sounds totally opposite of Job's picture of the wicked man in Job 21. Let me, let me say it because I don't know if I didn't start out on that right. They present a picture of the wicked as the wicked is trouble, the wicked has difficulties, the wicked is hardship. Job presents a picture of the wicked that is much different than that. In Job 21 verse 7, why do the wicked still live on and continue also and become very powerful? Their descendants are established with them in their sight, their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God on them. His ox mates without fail. His cow calves and does not abort. So he's talking about the prosperous, the blessed life of the wicked person who all the while is saying in verse 14, Depart from us! We do not even know. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. He is mocking God. He is defying God. And he is saying to God, depart from us. But everything in his life falls into place. Job asked the question in verse 17. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Or does calamity fall on them? Does God apportion destruction in his anger? How often does that happen? In 18.5, Bildad said, the lamp of the wicked's put out. Here Job says, how often? How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Now, look at verse 19. You say... 
God stores a man's iniquity for his sons. Let God repay... Okay, you say God stores away a man's iniquity for his sons. It seems like what Job is saying here is Job is anticipating an objection. The words you say are in italics. They're not in the original. But I do think they tell us the context. Job is saying... That these men may object when Job says, listen, the righteous are blessed, the righteous are prospered, the righteous don't always experience trouble, they don't always experience difficulty. Uh, Job is saying that these men may say, oh yes, well there are some cases where God doesn't punish the father, but God punishes the son, or God punishes his descendants for what happens. Job says in verse 19, Let God repay him so that he may see it. Let his own eyes see his decay and let him drink the wrath of the Almighty. Now, it's not fair that a father sin and the son drinks the wrath of God. It's not fair, Job is saying. And we can all identify with that in a certain way. We don't think that is fair. But I'll tell you what else is not fair. What is not fair is that we sinned and Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for our sin. That is not fair. But I tell you what that is. That is amazing grace. That's what that is. It's not fair. Fairness would be, okay, whoever's guilty, you're the one who receives the punishment. It's not fair. But it's God's grace. Who drinks the cup in Psalm 75a? It's the wicked who drink the cup. <clears throat> now, please understand, I'm not personally describing Jesus as wicked or as a sinner. Not at all. He is innocent and we are guilty. But he drank the cup so that we might be forgiven And we might be saved. Now, I'm not cutting off any questions on that. If you've got them, you can save them in just a second. But look at verse 10. I would not have recognized this. I would not have paid, I would not have read the text closely enough to notice it. But one commentary points this out. And only one of them that I had that I could say did. The word for the wicked in Psalm 75.10 the word for the wicked is plural. In Hebrew, the word for the righteous is singular. We're righteous is singular. Now, 
The fact that I make that distinction in the text, it's, it's very clear. The fact that I make that distinction doesn't mean that this could not be used as kind of a collective singular. Okay. But I do know that this term righteous is used to identify Jesus in Acts 3.14, in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7.52, and Paul describing his conversion in Acts 22.14. So in a certain sense, it finds a fulfillment in Jesus. Now I want to be careful there because it, the, the, the singular, like I said, can encompass a plural. It can encompass a whole group of righteous people. But at the same time, maybe the singular is used with purpose. And the righteous one that will ultimately be lifted up, that will be exalted, is Christ both on the cross and in the ascension, the resurrection, and the ascension to heaven. And therefore, we must put all our confidence and all our trust in Christ. And He will, as Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7 says, exalt one and bring down another. And the New Testament says in Matthew 23 and verse 12 that God will exalt the humble and He will humble the exalted. Uh, the same thing in Luke 14, 11. In Luke 18 and verse 14. God humbles the... God exalts the humble and God... Uh, humbles those who exalt themselves. And so if we put our trust in Jesus and put our confidence in Him, if we don't lift up our own horn, but we humble ourselves before Him, we provide, we experience His mercy and His forgiveness. He will lift us up as well. What questions do you have? What thoughts do you have? Anything? Someone pointed out <clears throat> there was a cup with my name on it that Jesus drank for me. Yes. That's right. And in a certain sense, we either accept that or say, no thanks. I'll drink it myself. Listen to Revelation 14, verse 10. It's one of my passages on the board. Let me just start with verse 9. Revelation 14, 9. Another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone, in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. So, He drank the cup for us. We can surrender to Him, or we can drink it ourselves.
There will be two kinds of people. Those who surrender to Christ and those who will have wished that they had. What else? Anything. Mary. Um, verse 2 Jesus will judge the world. Exactly. How could I miss that? <laughs> well, good point, Mary. That, that Jesus will judge um, and um, all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Does Romans 14 10 use this judgment seat of Christ? One, 2 Corinthians 5. Ten, I think, uses God. I think Romans ten uses Christ. Or I may have got those fixed up. Romans fourteen ten. But but we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans fourteen does. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's Second Corinthians five. Would you look at that real fast? Mm-hmm. Um, Acts ten uh, forty two. Uh, okay, that's right. the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Yes. Second Corinthians is the judgment seat of Christ. Okay. Second Timothy four one. That's right. That's right. Second Corinthians five ten. Second Corinthians Timothy four and one. We will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Or very good, very good. So that's a good point, Mary. I, I, that's and that's why I appreciate you all. You bring out things that are so obvious I should have seen, but I didn't. <coughs> Okay. Um, you said you said that he would judge the quick and the dead, <laughs> but but it's the, the living and the dead. Well, I think the quick is the King James translation. Oh, is it? Okay. I, it is. I, 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 I thought you were thinking of two sometimes. Types of people. Sometimes I have a flashback to my King James <laughs> Okay. Okay. And that was it. <laughs> Because I, I was thinking that didn't sound differently when I said it too, but th- there is a translation that had that. So, <laughs> okay, I know where you're thinking that I got that. Um, okay, Jason, will you lead us in prayer? We are <clears throat> thankful, oh God, to be here. Thank you, Father, for being with us as we have considered these words of old that are so uh, relevant to us today. It is a a testimony to your infinite wisdom that we can read these uh, psalms and we see Jesus uh, all throughout, Father, and we recognize him as our judge and the one that we need to uh, respect and and revere and uh, submit to Father. We are thankful God for his uh, example uh, that uh, was set for us Father as he more than uh, anyone has ever done Uh, humbled himself like no other, and yet uh, has been exalted by you uh, as as no other has been been exalted. Help us to to follow uh, his example, Father, to set aside our pride. Um, uh, Help us to 
resist the temptation to promote ourselves, Father. Help us, though, to be to live to declare your praises forever and ever. Again, we're thankful for this study, Father. And we pray, God, that we would uh, meditate and chew on these words as we leave and let them sink deeply into our hearts, Father. It's in Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Very good. Do we have a song? Okay. Can you believe it? <laughs> no. We, it took us a long time to realize it was going to fall. To Christ be true. Six verses.
Oz verse 10 is going to be. It's very concise, but I don't.